On Thursday night, I was getting out of my car. I don't think I had even opened the door yet at an auto parts store. And uh, I could hear the noise. And I opened my car door, and it was louder. And I knew something was going on inside of that building. I hadn't even opened the door to the place yet. And I could just hear the commotion going on inside. And I did a stupid thing. Oh, I think I'll walk in. <laughs> and I did. And there were three guys, two, uh, two that were together, and a, an older gentleman. And they were yelling at each other at the top of their uh, lungs. Um, it was no kidding. And then there were three of us kind of behind as the audience, you know, we... You know, we didn't even pay money for these tickets. And we're just watching this carnage unfolding in front of us. And there were two young guys behind the cash registers on the counter. I mean, high school, maybe maybe uh, early college, just looking like, what in the world do we do? No kidding. Screaming and yelling at each other. It was this debate over who was going to be served next. And it went on so long that they both could have been served by the time we were done there watching this, uh, uh, this event unfold. And, uh, and, and it, it started out with, well, who, was, who should be served first? And uh, the older gentleman said, you know, I was here standing at the cash register and I was ready to go. And the other two, and you could hear from their language issues that they spoke broken English and so they weren't completely familiar with the culture that we were in. And, and they felt like they should go first because they walked in the store first. And, you know, so you can kind of get it. Everybody thought that they were justified as being the most important people to pay attention to. And that it moved from, um, you know, who was there first to, where are you from? And these, these two younger gentlemen were obviously had immigrated recently from some other country. And uh, to, you know, that's racism. And, and it just got, you know, so isn't it interesting? It's not a matter of who's in line. It's basically, where are you from? And what, what does that give you? And what should I take into account? Because you're not from around here, are you? Isn't it interesting the way we position ourselves and, and argue over who's the most important? And it's not just at a cash register at O'Reilly's Auto Parts. Uh, but we're always thinking in terms of, why should you defer to me? Um, I, I'm, I'm a big deal. Um, who doesn't want to matter? Who doesn't want to be respected? Right? There's that longing in all of us, but that longing to matter, to be respected, can very easily twist and turn ugly. And that's what James is talking about when we get to chapter 2 this morning. James is a book that is uh, fascinating to walk through, and we've spent some time in chapter 1, which is basically a multi-layered introduction. Uh, it starts out with this uh, imperative to embrace trials with pure joy. And it moves on and it talks about the value of loving God to be characterized by worship and how that can fuel our lives and protect us from things. About the paths we can take, the path towards wisdom or the path towards death. It talks about wealth and the different kinds of wealth and the ways we measure what it means to be really wealthy, to be mature and complete and not lacking anything. And so it's going through all of these themes and introducing them to us. But by the time we get to chapter 2, we start walking into deeper discussions about all of those things. 
And the detailed discussion here in James chapter 2 is about this issue of, of favoritism. Now, we know some things about the church that James was writing to. It was beset by a number of problems. There was divisiveness that characterized the people in the congregation, intolerance, favoritism, and the overpowering desire for wealth and for status. In fact, there had been some teachers that had come through some of these churches and were actually saying that it was possible to embrace the values of the culture to pursue social climbing and to be characterized by snobbery and it was actually legit for a follower of Jesus. And that's a wonderful thing to hear if you're climbing and and you have a right to be a snob. It's so easy to embrace, isn't it, the culture if we can baptize it, if we can immerse it in language that, that makes us think we actually can be Christians at the same time. And so that's what James is talking about here, this kind of teaching that sanctions something that um, is is nowhere consistent with the genuine character of Jesus. And so James brings us back and them back to what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? What does it look like to actually bear that title Christian, to be little Christ? The standards of the current culture could feed Um, uh, destructive impulses. Do you remember the last verse of chapter 1 where it talked about this imperative to be kept from being polluted by the world? And oftentimes we can put that in context and say to be polluted by the world is to be around people who are, have messy lives when actually to be polluted by the world is to be characterized by distance from them. That we can actually be polluted by the world by trying to extract ourselves from the world or those people. And so now James is walking forward with that very same thing. Don't be polluted by the world. And how is that? It's because I can embrace concepts or values of the world that legitimize my distance from people or my status based on the things that I've got. So that's what Paul, that's what James is talking about here. And we walk into this first thing and he's warning us against what could be called toxic favoritism. Favoritism actually can become a toxic thing. It can, it can be a, falu- a, a, a pollutant in our lives. There's an ugliness that accompanies favoritism along the way. And he uses this illustration. It's a type of first century argumentation where you kind of paint a picture and it's, you know, it, it, it lays out the reality of the ugliness of something by, by elevating in some way. This is not a conversation about a church needing to put more chairs in their worship center, in their sanctuary, to solve the problem. The problem here isn't that someone has to sit on the floor and someone gets a nice seat. The problem is what's happening in our hearts that James is drawing attention to here. So this is not a seating chart issue. This is a what's in my heart issue. Uh, And it's that favoritism that can be in my heart that can be so destructive. And it's about more than just wealth. This is actually about a quest for glory and honor. Now, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago in regards to the opportunities, the avenues for glory and honor in the first century for those folks. And, and most of the avenues, the only avenues really centered around wealth, but it's not just the dollar, the amount in your checking account. It's actually the longing to be characterized by glory and by wealth. It's a sense, I want to be somebody. I really do. I want to be viewed as important. I want to be significant. 
And it's really not, not about the stuff I have. This is what allows me to get in the, behind the wheel of a Ferrari that I talked about a couple of weeks ago. And I don't even own the thing, but it just makes me feel so good about myself to be behind the wheel. You know, I don't have to have it, but, but I, the, 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 the sort of the glory, uh, the, 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 um, the honor, whatever it might be, I don't have to have it. It's this, it's this, this driving desire to be somebody. Uh, Plutarch, one of, uh, writer in the first century, said most men, talking about that, that era, most men think themselves robbed of their wealth if they're prevented from displaying it. You see, it's not just the having it, it's displaying it in such a way that it, it defines me. And uh, we talked about that some a couple of weeks ago. But in this context, there's a warning here, and it is this, that those with more resources can actually demean those with less. You see, I'm significant if you're not, or if you're less significant. And uh, we use measures that increase our significance and diminish others so I can feel the way I want to feel. And here's the tendency, is in the context of the church, is to demean others with less, or at least compare them in some ways. For those with wealth or those with status, it, 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 it gives us this ability to say, you know, I've got a little bit better car in my garage than you do. And I don't even mean that maliciously. I just, it's just true. And um, I'm in a pretty good state. And if you had the same values, the same drive, the same energy or whatever that I do, you would have it too. Oh, you don't have it, do you? So that, it's not just that you don't have it. It's that I can actually measure your character based on the things that you have. Isn't that interesting, the way it can just kind of move in that direction? And we see a person whose skin color is different, and I'm going to make assessments about your character based on your skin color or whatever else it might be, where you live, what you have. You see, and James is talking about this, and be careful, be careful. Do you, see, do you see what happens here when we begin to think with those categories in our life? We reduce the identity or the personhood of those other people to the point in which they're, they're, they, we don't even see them. Uh, I, I, I pull up to a stop sign in a part of the city that I, I don't live in and there's somebody with a sign asking for money or something and I don't even look them in the eye because there's just a distance there. Uh, they don't even fit in my world. It's that. James is not against wealth. God is not against wealth, but he's against the church becoming an arena in which those displays of wealth are used to enhance status or create um, levels. When I was a young man, I walked into a church in a very affluent community in the United States. And one of the things that er I noticed early on was that essentially every piece of furniture in the place had somebody's name on it. And the bigger pieces of furniture had uh, names on it from people who, were, who had given more. Now, God obviously is for generosity, but it's just like something just happened there that the values of the world just kind of walked in the front door. And a status was determined by who's got their name on what. You know, now that, that, that's not true around here, but 
It can be true in our hearts, can't it? And there's just this pull towards stuff like that. And James says, don't let it happen. Uh, and then the other part of it is this, is that those with fewer resources can depend on those with more. That's what we see happening here. This person says, let me give you the nice place because if you're happy, I'm happy. If you're happy, I could be happy. You know, and there's a sense of connection that you become, if I, can, if I can get close and honor you, perhaps it'll come both ways and benefit me. And we begin to think that way and we discover that we find ourselves more dependent on what a human person can do for us than God himself. And my security becomes my relationship with people that have more than I do rather than my relationship with the God who has all I need. You see how it can, it can just kind of happen, twist that way and become a part of us. And James says, you know, it's kind of crazy, isn't it? I mean, you're depending on, for your needs, people who have money and, and you live in a world where you know that fact that people have money doesn't necessarily mean a good thing for you. I mean, some of them are taking you to court. There's no inherent value or godliness found in the quantity of money that a person has. Uh, so don't depend on that or don't be inclined towards them because they can be messed up as easily or, as easier, perhaps even easier than you because they've got to deal with the mess of all of that money. Don't, don't look to them. Look to him, James is saying. Don't depend on them. Depend on him. And, and then James just unloads this bombshell and he says, um, did you know, actually, verse 5, God has chosen the poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised for those who love him. The irony is that we're actually diminishing God's chosen people. And that's exactly what James is saying here. And the Jewish audience would have heard it with that power and with that force in it. James was writing primarily to Jewish Christian congregations. And they knew that language. They were, after all, God's chosen people. And there's a sense of significance in that. And then James takes that language and he puts it on the poor as God's chosen people. In the congregation of the family of God, those without anything should be cherished. This is why James is so upset because you're demeaning them. No, they actually should be cherished because you know what? They bring a perspective on the character of God that those of us with stuff don't have. They actually see that God is the one that provides them. It's not poverty alone here, but it's rather the faith that poverty germinates that is so rich and beneficial to us. There are those who trust in God and there who are tr those who trust in God mixed with a trust in stuff. And if we want to be guided towards maturity in Christ, we will look to those with, with nothing other than dependence on the Father to show us the richness of simple dependence on the Father. See, that's what James is actually saying here. There are those who put their trust in God not in the hope for material wealth 
and they do it better than us because that's the only way they can move forward. The rich are actually further from the kingdom of heaven. It's more challenging for them. Jesus said this. Why? Because it's harder to trust Christ and still be tasked with the management of all that stuff. And then James reminds us of who Jesus is. And he describes him here in the beginning of this and in verse 7 as the one who is the noble one. The noble name of him to whom you belong. Before that, he starts out by introducing the God of the universe as the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So if you need riches, if you need nobility in your life, here is the noble one, the glorious one, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Do you see embedded in all of this, James brings us right back to the gospel again. He says, the danger for those of you, those of us with wealth, is that you won't realize how, uh, who I am because you know who you are, and that's the big deal for you. Have you forgotten? He is the noble, glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He, he is the rock. He is the fortress. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything that I need from him. And for those who are struggling and just trying to find somebody that they can hang on to and trust to help them in a time of need, no, you go to the gospel because it is God himself who is good and beautiful who tells us the truth about our brokenness and is right there to provide everything we need and then, as poor as we might be, invites us on the same adventure that he invites anybody on who confesses the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we're brought right back to the gospel here. The reason why favoritism is so deadly is because it, deny, it destroys our ability to see the glory of the gospel. And James calls us to something that is not an inferior faith. And then he goes to the, the uh, obedience and talks about not only what toxic favoritism looks like, but what total obedience looks like. And there's reference here to the royal law. We see it couched in this phrase, love your neighbor as yourself, in verse 8. James actually makes a distinction in this book between the Old Testament law, to which he refers to as, with the simple word nomos, which is the word law. And then he talks about um, a Christian understanding of the Old Testament law that is embedded with the character of Jesus Christ. And he refers to this in chapter 1, verse 25, as the perfect law, because it's not just simply a list of do's and don'ts. It's a, it's a presence of the Lord Jesus Christ that comes alongside of that thing, making it perfect and characterizing it, what is, it, it, it is what God always intended. It's referred to as the perfect law that gives freedom in chapter 1. Here in chapter 2, it's referred to as the royal law. The Greek phrase is used here and is a reference to a law given by a king. It's not just the stuff. It's the stuff accompanied by the king that makes it royal and it makes it extraordinary. This resonated with adherence of the faith of Jesus as Messiah, as the king. He is the one. The beauty of this law is that it takes seriously both the law and the mercy that comes with our Father in heaven. It is a God who says our sin matters. And he also says, and so do you who doesn't let down or doesn't wink at sin, but it says it absolutely matters. And this is how much it matters. Jesus died on the cross for you. 
And this is how much it matters. Jesus died on the cross for you. <laughs> That's the perfect law. It is this embrace of, 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 of law and mercy, of sin and grace. God does not excuse our sin, but he does forgive us. That's the law he calls us to obey. A law that is characterized by adherence to the things that matter and devotion to the one who matters. That's what he invites us into, total obedience to that law. And, it's, and the whole law as well. He says, really, with his reference to love your neighbor as yourself, you don't get to choose the neighbor. You just, you just, you, you just embrace whoever it is and whatever it is. And then he describes the whole of the law, and he says, you know what? You know what it is. It's, don't commit adultery and don't commit murder, but it's also don't show favoritism. And every single one of those, all of those have the same weight and destructive category. Every one of those dishonors people made in the image of God. Obviously, murder does. Adultery certainly does. And did you know favoritism does? It dishonors those who are made in the image of God. If you're going to adhere to the perfect law, don't do any of it, and don't let yourself off the hook. Because it all matters. And so he comes to this invitation. This is the means by which we might be able to navigate our impulses. And it is, he says, to choose mercy. Because mercy triumphs over judgment. And our favoritism earlier in this text, he described as judgment. It's a choice to judge, to see categories, to make decisions, to place people. And he says, don't, don't walk that path anymore. How, how, God, do I keep from that? It is so embedded in me. And then he gives an answer. Mercy. Live mercy. That's the means by which we can become the people that God longs for us to be. A merciful attitude is one of the evidences that a person is truly alive in Jesus Christ. Let me just give you a couple practical ways to be able to embed that in your life, in my life. The first is this. When you look at someone, look closely enough to see yourself in them. The image of God is characteristic of every single person God has made. Spend enough time looking at them close enough to see you in who they are. Because when I see me there, I get it. And I understand. In the Roman world, the poor were considered as faceless nothings in the eyes of the wealthy. They wouldn't even make eye contact with them. And God, God appeals to us to show compassion. And the means by which that can happen is if we see them. I have a friend of mine who, in studying the book of James, told me a couple months ago about one of his applications. And you know what he does? He has granola bars in his, the door of his car. And whenever he comes up to that red light and there's that person with that sign who's been standing out there and perhaps a bit hungry and worn out, he says, hey, let me, I got something for you. I hope this will help. You know, you do all right. You know, I don't think it's possible to give a granola bar without looking somebody in the eyes. 
What about that? They actually see a person and we look in their eyes and we see a little bit of us in there as well. And then, and then the mercy starts to spill out. And it's not just for people that are in poor situations than us. It's for people that are in better situations than us. Oh, they're so much different than me. No, look them in the eyes and discover that they and you, they and me, both need the same gracious forgiveness of our gracious, glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And when I can see even a person who is way above me in the standards of the world, if I can look in their eyes and see the similarities, I can actually connect with them. And I can be characterized by mercy for them. You know, in some of the Jewish teachings in the Midrash, one of the teachings was this. If before a judge, two men appear for judgment, one rich and the other poor, the judge should say to the rich man, either dress in the same manner as he is dressed or clothe him as you are clothed. Isn't that interesting? So that when the judge sees them, he sees the same thing. Two people. That calling is a calling for us as well too. Let, let there be no opportunity for distinctions. And the means of that being true is for me to see you. And then the second aspect of this is to cultivate humility because the cultivation of humility gives us the means to be characterized by mercy. And this is the example of Christ and James is referencing this, but it comes out in just a powerful way in Philippians chapter 2 where Paul is telling Christians how to get along with each other and to be connected into community with each other. And he uses the example of Jesus Christ. And it says this, And your relationships with one another have the same mindset of that of Jesus Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God to be something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And God says to us, be like Jesus. Be characterized by that humility in relationship with others. And when I am characterized by humility, mercy spills out of me. When you choose to be characterized by that kind of humility, this kind of mercy spills out of our life. You know, those, two, those three guys in O'Reilly's on Thursday night, uh, they began to yell at each other, and then they began to take out the big dog weapons. They used words in ways I hadn't heard them said maybe ever in my life. I mean... These words were coming out of their mouth at each other and these gestures that I won't share with you this morning right in front of each other's face. I mean, it was absolutely horrible. And I think, you know, you, if, if, if your identity is on the line, that kind of stuff, they were taking offense at it. And then I thought of what Christ was like, who, it says, 
on the very night he was betrayed, took the bread and broke it and gave it to those, the one who would betray him. It doesn't matter what you say to me. It doesn't matter what words you use. It doesn't matter what's in your heart. I am going to show grace to you because he looked in their eyes and he loved them. And this is what God calls us to. My prayer for us is, to, is this, that we would discover mercy and that it would spill out of our lives in really practical, concrete ways this week. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your graciousness to us, God, and to take the time to be able to point out this kind of a stuff that we can say it's true, it's true, it's true, it's, and also to say we need you, we need you, we need you. So God, we pray for your grace. We thank you for your presence in our life, and we ask, Lord, that we would operate the way you do in the world we live in. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.